1: visit safeway.com for more details yo next round is about to start you ready yeah yeah just shopping for a car in carvana for real yeah carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever wherever for real that's a ton of car options yep and these are all within my price range for really real you can afford that yeah with carvana and boom just like that i'm getting it delivered in a couple days for really really real you just bought a car For real, and you just lost, my turn.
2: Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. My
0: days working taking care of my little ones can be a lot. I checked out Care.com
2: and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters. Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their
0: profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, and get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to.
3: You're listening to the Fuck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: A number of recent mass shootings have caused the left to renew their efforts to implement new gun control laws around the country. That includes red flag laws, universal background checks, and even calls for ban on assault weapons. But do any of these laws actually work the way they're intended? On this special edition of Hold the Line, we'll examine the left's latest calls for new gun restrictions and bust some of the myths of gun control. Welcome to the special edition of Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. This is the usual rhythm. This is unfortunately the cycle that we go through after a horrific mass shooting in this country. Democrats start immediately shouting about gun control. And I do mean shouting. They're angry at anybody who does not want to go along with these policies. They immediately forget all about the myriad Laws out there with regard to gun purchasing, gun transfer, what kind of guns you can have, FFLs, background checks, all of this. They pretend like it doesn't exist and that there's some kind of a free for all, like we're living in some other period in our history. You just get a gun, go wherever you want with it, nothing matters. It's dishonest. It's wrong. But there's a lot of emotional impulse that they use to mobilize people to call for this gun control. Joe Biden, for example, just saying this, we need to do something about guns, watch.
3: This time, we have to take the time to do something. And this time, it's time for the Senate to do something. Do what? That's always
0: the question that we turn around to ask. Okay, to do what? We already have background checks. Oh, we need universal background checks. Really, do we think that increasing background checks to private individuals engaged in a private sale of their own property, that's going to stop shootings? Really? Do we think that's going to work? We don't think that's also just going to harass a lot of people who are selling their own property to somebody else? Is that, how many shootings is going to stop? I'm just wondering, I think we should ask these questions. I think it's worth at least getting into it. And then banning assault weapons. Assault weapons are used in less than 5%, some would say less than 2 or 3%, I think, of all shootings across the country, very, very small percentage of shootings. But Vice President Harris, for example, is calling for an assault weapons ban because she says, we know it works.
3: We are not sitting
2: around waiting to figure out what the solution looks like. You know, we're not looking for a vaccine. We know what works on this. It includes, let's have an assault weapons ban. You know what an assault weapon is? You know how an assault weapon was designed? It was designed for a specific purpose.
3: To kill a lot of human beings quickly.
0: They don't know what works, actually. And these are the same Democrats, by the way, who think that we're all going to be safer if we just don't punish criminals, including violent criminals, very much. That if we have progressive prosecutors, if we have defunding of police, if we take social justice over criminal justice as our, uh, as our mantra that we'll be better off as a society, safer as a society, we've seen that's not true. You have 30% spike in homicides in 2020 nationwide. You have some of the most violent years in recorded history for dozens of cities across the country. So they don't actually know how to stop violence, gun violence, you name it, but they keep saying they do. And then there are some abject morons like Congressman Swalwell, who says things like this. So I think we've debunked the idea
4: that the answer to a killer with an assault rifle is to have more, quote unquote, good guys with guns. The good guys with guns are outgunned by the bad guys that we've given guns in our country.
0: What is he even talking about? First of all, no one one who knows anything has been debunked. And there are many shootings every year that are either stopped in progress from being a mass casualty event or stopped from becoming a casualty event at all because of somebody who did have a lawful firearm who was able to bring it to bear in the situation. But look, here's what we have to do. Because this is a national conversation and the Democrats are insistent, let's have a discussion. Let's look at what they want and then we will debunk gun control myths. We'll go through this with real experts on the subject. We'll address each of the primary policy proposals of the Democrats, and we'll see what we actually learn. All right, let's do it. we come back, editor of BearingArms.com, Cam Edwards stops by to discuss the constitutional basis for Americans' right to keep and bear arms, starting right there. Stay with us. Support for my podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with its exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code BUCK at Manscaped.com. The Performance Package 4.0 includes a ton of men's grooming products like the Lawn Mower 4.0 Trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a bunch of other great men's hygiene products you never knew you needed, plus a travel bag to hold it all. The Lawn Mower Trimmer is the best. It's got a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, and it's waterproof, so no more messes on the bathroom floor. You'll also get the waterproof weed whacker nose and ear hair trimmer with proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs in all those delicate areas. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BUCK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code BUCK to unlock your confidence and always use the right tools with Manscaped. When we speak of the myths of the gun control movement, we have to begin with the text of the Constitution itself. The Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Seems fairly simple. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But many proponents of gun control see things quite differently. Some arguing that the right only applies to people in the context of a government-regulated militia. So, is membership in a state-sanctioned militia a prerequisite for owning a firearm? Hmm. Join me now to dispel some of the myths around the gun-grabbing movement. Is the editor of BearingArms.com, Cam Edwards? Cam, thanks for being with us. Absolutely, Buck. Thanks so much for the invite. So, Cam, we'll get to the well-regulated part in a moment here, but let's start with the uh, the notion of, of the militia. The militia component here. Justice James McReynolds, writing the court's opinion in 1939, US v. Miller, defined the militia as uh, he debates in the convention the history and legislation of colonies and states, and the writings of approved commentators show plainly enough the militia comprised all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense. So, what do you make of what we know here of the history of this, as well as the reality, the constitutional reality of the Second Amendment?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, you can get even more specific, right? Because there's the organized militia and there's the unorganized militia. Um, The unorganized militia is basically us, right? It's the body of the American people. According to US code, it's uh, males between the ages of, I believe, 17 and 65 uh, comprise the unorganized militia. But I I think a fair reading uh, of the unorganized militia today is basically the body of people capable of, of bearing arms in either defense of themselves or the state, if necessary. We, the people, are the militia.
0: term well-regulated, some on the uh, uh, anti-gun movement will say that that phrase empowers the federal government to regulate militias. Justice Scalia, though, defined well-regulated in DC v. Heller as the objective well-regulated implies nothing more than the imposition of proper discipline and training. So what do you make of it? Well, I think Justice Scalia had it right. Uh, But again, what we're talking about here is a well-regulated
4: militia, right? Not a well-regulated body of people. uh, Not a well-regulated group of gun owners. Uh, What this basically means is that in the service of a militia, absolutely you want those militia members to have training, to have some sort of uh, experience with the firearms and the equipment that they're going to be using. Um, But does that mean that every regulation – that a gun control advocate wants to propose is all of a sudden gonna comport with the Second Amendment because the Second Amendment has the word regulated in it? Of course not. And that's the type of misreading of the Second Amendment that we've been seeing, frankly, for decades now.
0: And Cam, let's talk also about the argument you'll sometimes hear that, that the Constitution would only protect uh, the firearms in usage at that time. I, mean, I know that this is, and this is not as common as some of the other arguments people say, Well, fine, you're allowed to have a musket as part of a militia. What do you say to that?
4: Sure, and I guess journalists are allowed to have quill pens and printing presses, right? Because the First Amendment could never apply to any sort of means of communication that weren't around in uh, 1787 or 1791. I mean, look, this is ridiculous. And frankly, the Supreme Court has addressed this as well. First, in the Heller decision, and then even more explicitly in a procurium opinion that was handed down shortly after Justice Antonin Scalia passed away, a case called Catano versus Massachusetts. And the state of Massachusetts had banned stun guns, and they claimed that stun guns weren't protected by the Second Amendment because electronic weapons weren't around at the time of the founding. The Supreme Court said, no, that's not the standard, that's not the test. Arms that are in common use for a variety of lawful purposes, are prima facie protected by the Second Amendment. Uh, And so that would include semi-automatic firearms, that would include lever action rifles. I also find it odd, Buck, that they stick to this when it comes to modern sporting rifles, nobody ever says, "Well, uh, you know, revolvers weren't around when the Second Amendment was ratified, so revolvers can't be protected." Uh, they 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 use this argument specifically to go after the guns that they're trying to ban at this point. Their argument, as you say, taken to its logical conclusion, would be that you can't own anything other than a perhaps a brace of single fire pistols, uh, a muzzle loading rifle, uh, maybe a blunderbuss. And again, that's just not how we treat any. Of our rights, as technology progresses, as time moves on, those rights remain sacrosanct, uh, even though the tools that we might be using, you know, change from our
0: grandfather's day. Yes, and as cool as a blunderbuss may look, it is not the most reliable firearm to be using, especially if one has to defend oneself. Just throwing that one out there. You mentioned a uh, D.C.V. Heller and and also the the idea of common usage. That obviously comes up, Cam. Now. Because of the huge push. I, I think the primary push we're seeing um, from the gun grabbers is, that, uh, is the assault weapons ban issue. And uh, this, this goes a little bit away from our constitutional analysis, but Biden, for example, will, will say, we know that that worked. And so we know that if we do that again, it will work again. Um, for one thing, uh, I, want, I want to know what you think of The claim that the assault weapons ban of 1993, I believe, or 1994, uh, that it worked, and the other part of this is, if AR-15s are the most common rifle owned in America, which I believe they are, and DCV Heller says common usage is the standard for firearms ownership, how can they ban something that's the most common rifle that's obviously in common usage? Sorry, I'm throwing two at.
4: yeah, so I'll answer the second question first, and that is the sort of $64 million question, right? How can you ban something? Look, there are more AR-15s in the hands of American citizens. There are Ford F-150 pickup trucks on American roads, right? The AR-15 is in common use, and I think that is the biggest barrier to enacting a nationwide gun ban. Now, the appellate courts around the country that have upheld, quote, unquote, assault bans in places like Maryland and California have used differing arguments, but basically they- come down on the side that, well, these arms aren't actually covered by the Second Amendment. The Fourth Circuit, which covers Virginia, where I live, uh, ruled egregiously that because AR-15s are like machine guns in that they look like them, uh, that they are covered uh, uh, under uh, Justice Scalia's uh, uh, comment in Heller about- uh, you know, this, this, decision shouldn't cast any doubt on longstanding prohibitions against, you know, ownership of machine guns and the like. Uh, so again, you've seen the courts abuse and misread what the Supreme court has said in order to try to uphold this ban on what is a commonly owned firearm. Now, as for the efficacy of Biden's gun ban back in the 1990s, you know, he is talking about one specific study that used one very narrow definition of what constitutes a quote-unquote mass shooting, right? And that was, I believe, a shooting in which six or more people are killed or injured. If you were to change that dynamic, if you were to lower the number to five, for example, from six, all of a sudden the statistics change. But what we do know overall is that any homicide in which a rifle is used is a pretty rare event in the United States. There are actually more people who are killed, according to the FBI Uniform Crime Report, with fists and feet than with a rifle of any kind in any given year. So the idea that we're gonna focus on this one particular firearm that isn't used in a lot of crime and thinks that it's going to make an impact uh, on on violent crime nationwide, I think is absolutely absurd. Uh, This is, I believe, part and parcel of the gun control advocates and the anti-gun Democrats' plan, uh, again, to try to turn our Second Amendment right
0: into a privilege. Cam, let's look at some more of the gun control policies and some of the myths that they are based on. We come back here in a second. The recent mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, have led both Democrat and some Republican lawmakers to propose new gun control measures. Cam Edwards is going to return with us in a moment to take a look at what the new laws would mean and how effective they'd be, if effective at all, when we return with this special edition of Hold the Line.
3: intend to do, raise the age uh, to buy weapons of war, restrict access to ghost guns, outlaw high-capacity magazines, ban civilian bomb stock sales, crack down on gun trafficking, and advance safe gun storage.
0: Recent shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas have led federal lawmakers to propose a whole host of new gun control measures, as Nancy Pelosi was just uh, describing there. One proposal that seems to be gaining bipartisan support are so-called red flag laws, which allow law enforcement to confiscate the firearms of people deemed to be a threat to themselves or others by a court. Join me now, again, is the editor of Bearing Arms, Cam Edwards. Cam, good to have you back. Take, take us through this, red flag laws. Have they worked? Would they work? What are the problems as you see it with them? All right, so have they worked? First of all, it's really hard to
4: prove that the presence of a red flag law prevented a crime from from occurring, right? It's hard even for advocates to say, well, if we hadn't had this, then X would have happened. But the one study that I keep hearing advocates of red flag laws cite is a study of Connecticut's red flag law in terms of reducing suicides. And they say that for every, somewhere between every 10 to 20 firearms that were seized, or, or I should say every 10 to 20 red flag petitions that were initiated, one suicide was prevented, which means, at best, maybe a 10% reduction in the number of suicides for every person who was disarmed. So my question then becomes, well, what happened to those other nine to 19 people? Do they go on to commit suicide by another means? Or were they not dangerous to begin with? You know, this is one of the, the issues that I have here, Buck, is that red flag laws, we are told, are designed to keep dangerous people from doing dangerous things. But under every red flag law that I've seen in effect, what happens is someone is deemed by a judge to be dangerous. There may or may not be in a medical evaluation. Most of the time there's not. There's a lowered standard of evidence that needs to be presented by the prosecutor. And then once a judge says, yeah, we believe that person's dangerous, they take their legally owned firearms and they leave the dangerous person alone with their knives, with their pills, with their cans of gasoline and their matches and their car keys. It doesn't actually do anything to address the individual. This is a gun control proposal that masquerades as a sort of mental health bill. Most gun, uh, most red flag laws do not have any mental health prop- uh, proposals or components to them whatsoever. Uh, and that's by design because that's expensive. Right To actually institutionalize somebody to ensure that they're getting the treatment that they need so that they're not in crisis and not truly a danger to themselves or others, that costs money. Uh, and it's easier. It's simpler to simply you know, red flag someone and claim that you've addressed the problem. So that's one issue that I have. I have due process concerns with red flag laws, but I also worry about the unintended consequences. You know, I've been talking to a lot of Second Amendment advocates around the country over the past week. And one of the common concerns that I've heard from people in states that have expansive red flag laws that allow almost anybody to initiate these petitions is that it actually stops people from seeking help. So you may have had somebody who, you know, is going through a painful divorce. Uh, or maybe they just lost a spouse or a loved one, or somebody. They was want PTSD to talk to somebody
0: overseas, right? Exactly, right.
4: And they want to talk to somebody. Now, look, they're they're not suicidal, they're not a danger, but they are gun owners, and they're really concerned that some overzealous counselor is going to say, "Oh my gosh, okay, so you're you're talking about depression and you own guns. We, we've got to get those guns away from you." And they're concerned about people who are who are actively going to withdraw from treatment or not seek out treatment because they're afraid that they're going to get caught up in one of these red flag laws. We need to be working towards destigmatizing, getting mental health help. We need to be working towards encouraging people to reach out when they need help. And I, I just I can't help but think that these red flag laws are going to take us down a road we don't want to go down.
0: Another measure, and I think it's based at some level on the, the myth that a lot of people believe that we don't have a lot of background checks, I mean, millions and millions and millions of them being run all the time, um, a measure that seems to be getting some traction, including among some Republicans, is a universal background check. That's the phrase that's always used. Here's what Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey said recently.
4: Is your proposal to expand background checks still in it?
0: Well, I certainly hope we're going to have uh, an expansion of background checks. You know, Senator Manchin and I have been working on this for a long time, and we've tried to establish that, at least for commercial sales of firearms, there ought to be a background check. So sales at gun shows, sales that are advertised over the Internet. Okay, so, Cam, you you know, this is, we hear this all the time, so please walk us through this. Are, Are there commercial sales where there isn't a background check? Let's start with that.
4: Yeah, no, Uh, and I'm confused why Pat Toomey would try to cloud this issue here. So no, every commercial sale of a firearm needs to go through a background check. But again, if you're a private gun owner who is selling a firearm from their personal collection, that's not a commercial sale, right? Once you are engaged in the commercial business of selling or buying firearms, you're required under federal law to get a federal firearms license. When we talk about universal background checks, what we are talking about again are those private sales from from individual gun owners. And I'll be honest with you, Buck, whether or not you think everybody who buys a gun should go through a background check, a universal background check law does nothing to prevent violent crime because it is impossible to proactively enforce. How do law enforcement know if I'm going to sell my gun to my neighbor? They, they don't know. At best, this is something that would be discovered after a crime has been committed. And then you could go back and charge the original seller. But at that point, you know, again, the damage has already been done. And, and frankly, in a lot, most states, a lot of states
0: also have laws can where you can loan, you know, if you if your brother in law wants to go hunting, you can give your shotgun as long as he's not a prohibited possessor to that individual to go. right. Aren't there situations like that that are covered under the law that are lawful?
4: No, oh, absolutely. I mean, again, that's it, listen. It, the, the the status quo, the gold standard is: it's your property. Uh, you know, again, as long as you're not uh, breaking the law, as long as you're not knowingly arming criminals, it's your property to do with what you want. Uh, it, what what again? What the Democrats are trying to do here is upend that
0: and, and, cre- and create in criminal in events.
4: Sure. Quick, here here's
0: here's uh, President Biden on the. This is another one that comes up with all this: the gun show loophole. Watch.
3: The question now is, what will the Congress do? The House of Representatives already passed key measures we need. Expanding background checks to cover nearly all gun sales, including at gun shows and online sales. Getting rid of the loophole allows a gun sale to go through after three business days, even if the background check has not been completed.
0: Okay, can I so first of all, can I can I just, like, buy? I mean, obviously, in New York, you can't buy anything. But in some states, you just buy an AR-15 and no background check, and they just send it to you in the mail? Is that how it works? Online? Uh, no. I mean. No.
4: Yeah. Um, no. Typically, listen, okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, let's start with the, quote-unquote, gun show loophole. Again, if you are in the business of selling firearms, you have to put your customers through a background check. If you are a private gun owner who maybe has a table that you rent at a gun show, because you're selling a couple of guns from your private collection. Or you run into somebody at the gun show and you're talking about you know, what it is that they're looking for and you say, oh, you know what? I've actually been looking to sell one of my pistols. I'll sell it to you. Those are private sales. And again, there's no way to proactively enforce a background check law to require those people to go to an FFL and have a background check run before that gun is sold. Uh, even if you were to require this at every gun show, what's to stop those individuals from walking outside in the parking lot and saying, hey, you know what? I'll meet you up, uh, meet up at the party, you know, at, at, at your house an hour from now. This is no solution to actually addressing violent crime. And as for uh, you know, selling guns out of state, um, the current federal law is that if you purchase a handgun, if I, you know, in Virginia, as a Virginia resident, if I were to go to Maryland or Pennsylvania or up to New York, God forbid, um, I would have to have that firearm shipped back to an FFL in Virginia before I could take possession of it. Um, Some states may have laws requiring that for long guns as well, uh, but that is not a federal requirement. So even if you buy a gun at retail uh, in another state, under federal law, you can actually pick that gun up there in the state where where you're at, as opposed to the state where you live. Uh, but the idea that you know, again, you're just seeing these massive amounts of people who are, you know, popping up online and saying, "Hey, I got a gun to sell you. I'm going to ship it via UPS." No, that's not happening. And even if it was, Buck, it wouldn't
0: be addressed by a background check law. Amazing, Dan. Appreciate the expertise as always, man. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Buck. We'll be right back with more of this special edition of Hold the Line.
2: Each morning, the President of the United States receives a highly classified briefing on the most important issues facing the country. It's called the President's Daily Brief, or PDB. It's delivered by America's spies and analysts. Well, now you can hear your very own PDB in the form of a podcast hosted by me, Brian Dean Wright, a former CIA operations officer. Each morning at 6 a.m. Eastern, I'll bring you 15 to 20 minutes of the most important issues facing the country, giving you the critical intelligence and analysis you need to start your morning.
3: This time, we have to take the time to do something, and this time, it's time for the Senate to do something.
0: Do something. That's the refrain we constantly hear after every mass shooting. Inevitably, the anti-gun crowd calls for more background checks, stricter control over so-called assault weapons, or more gun-free zones. But few people take the time to determine if the gun control measures being proposed would work to prevent crime or mass shootings. Thankfully, one man has actually done the work, looked at the data. John Lott is the author of More Guns, Less Crime, and the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. He joins me now. John, thank you for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me on, Buck. So John, you literally wrote the book on the issue of crime and gun control. I want to go through some of the more common gun control measures and, honestly, gun control myths that we hear about. Uh, hear about. Let's start with uh, gun-free zones, right? The idea here that the left puts forward is gun-free zones prevent gun crimes. What does the data tell us?
3: Right. But, I mean, let me first of all say for 20 years, over 20 years, I've wanted to go and do something. I find it very frustrating. Unfortunately, I think the types of proposals that gun control advocates and people like uh, President Biden put out will actually either make things worse or have no impact. One thing that I think would make a huge difference is getting rid of these gun-free zones. Uh, Ninety-six percent. Of the successful mass public shootings keep on occurring in places where guns are banned. I understand what's hoped for here. The notion is you simply go and ban guns from certain areas, then you won't have gun crimes in those areas. Unfortunately, I think this is one example where the opposite happens, that when you go and you ban guns in certain places, the most law-abiding good citizens who obey that, and rather than deterring criminals from going committing crimes in those places it actually serves as a magnet for them to go and commit crimes and it you know just look at the last few attacks that we've had uh, the Tulsa hospital shooting was a gun free zone the school in Texas was a gun free zone 30% of the schools in Texas actually have armed teachers and staff but this wasn't one of them you look at the Buffalo grocery store shooter if people actually go and read the the murderer's manifesto, there, he actually talks about how he picked the particular target that he did. He wanted to go to a place where he knew uh, the civilians there would not have permanent concealed handguns for protection, because it would make his job so much more difficult. Uh, and he's not the only one. We have many cases where we've gone through diaries or uh, manifestos or other things that these murderers. And these mass public shootings have left over time. These people may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. Their goal is to try to kill as many people as possible. And if they go to a place where victims aren't able to go and defend themselves, they're going to be more successful. I mean, let me put it to you this way. Let's say, God forbid, somebody was stalking you or your family, was really seriously threatening you. Would you feel safer putting a sign in front of your home that said your home is a gun-free zone? Do you think that if the attacker went up to the house and he said, well, there are no guns allowed in this place, so I'm not going to take my weapon in there, that that's somehow going to deter him? If anything, it'd have the opposite impact. He would know that people in there weren't able to defend themselves. Look at the penalty that you face for taking a gun into a gun-free zone like a school. You face an additional two or three years in prison. If somebody's gonna go and kill twenty-one people in that place, you know, already facing twenty-one life sentences or twenty-one death penalties. Do you really think an additional two or three year sentence is gonna be? Well, that that's gonna be what's gonna keep him from going and committing that crime. It's just ridiculous. These guys want to kill as many people as possible, and they know if they go to a place where victims can't defend themselves, they're gonna be able to go and kill more people. Their goal is to try to get media coverage. I'll give you an example. You look at the Sandy Hook killer. He had done what police described as essentially a doctoral dissertation where he looked at mass shootings over the previous 40 years, not only in the United States, but attacks around the world. And he apparently had graphed out the relationship between the number of people killed in attacks and the amount of media coverage it got. And his goal, according to one police report, was to go and kill more people than the Norway killer had killed, because Norway killer at that time, this was before the Paris attack, had killed the most people in a mass public shooting. And and he believed that if he could only kill more people than the Norway person who killed 67 people with a gun, that he could get even more worldwide media attention. John, I wanna
0: also ask you about another uh, gun control myth the idea that just aggregate gun ownership, effectively, the more people who own guns, the more crime there is with guns, legal gun ownership we're talking about here. What can you tell us about that?
3: Well, that's that's simply not true. May I give you a, a simple statistic? And that is, there are a number of places around the world, not just in the United States, that have either tried to ban all guns or all handguns. People are experienced familiar with the experiences in Chicago and Washington DC. And yet every single place that's banned either all guns or all handguns has seen an increase in murder rates afterwards. You think out of randomness, once or twice, you'd at least get the murder rates and homicide rates to go down or at least stay the same. But yet every single time it goes up, often by large amounts. Now in the cases of Chicago and Washington DC, Gun control advocates will say, well, that really wasn't a fair test uh, because unless you go and ban guns every place in the country, criminals will still get guns from the rest of Illinois or from Indiana or from Maryland or Virginia. You know, the thing is, one, it would have been nice if they had told us to begin with that they thought that the experiment was going to fail. But two, the the problem that you face is that there are countries around the world that have banned either all guns or all handguns, Uh, you have island nations that have done that, that don't have a neighbor that they can easily go and blame uh, for supplying the guns. And yet you see the same type of pattern, whether it be Jamaica or Ireland or or the UK. Uh, And the reason is pretty simple. And that is when you go and you ban guns, you may make it somewhat more difficult for some criminals to get guns, but it's primarily gonna be the most law-abiding, good citizens who obey the law and turn in their guns. And if you disarm, law abiding citizens relative to criminals, you actually make it easier for criminals to go and commit crimes. They have less to worry about in doing it and they become bolder in terms of committing those types of crimes. But you know, again, <clears throat> there are other ways you can look at it. I, I personally find looking at lots of different places over time a lot more convincing. You know, One of the things that people will make comparisons with is they'll say, look at the United Kingdom and the United States. The United Kingdom has very few homicides compared to the United States. And they have extremely strict gun control laws. Many types of guns like handguns and rifles are banned. uh, And yet they have a lower homicide rate. So it must be the strict gun control laws that cause the, the lower homicide rate. In fact, if you look before they had the gun control laws there, They had even lower homicide rates relative to the United States. That their homicide rates went up, they still may be lower than the rate in the United States, but they went up relative to what they had been before when they had those types of strict gun control laws that were there. And, you know, I could go on just making other types of comparisons across places, but I think it's pretty clear that when you look at the data correctly, uh, that there's a very clear relationship. Look, police are extremely important. Anybody who's read my work knows that I think police are the single most important factor for reducing crime. But the police themselves know that they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. And the question is, what's the safest course of action for people to take? And police- John, way, I wanna
0: get into this with you some more, if we can just sure. take a, a moment here, we'll come back into that issue and more of the gun control myths that are out there in just a moment. It's hard to talk about gun control without discussing the left's favorite target of it, AR 15s, so called assault weapons. After the break, we'll separate fact from fiction behind America's most popular rifle in this special edition of Hold the Line. Stay with us.
4: So, listen, I think there's a difference between what we should be doing and what is reasonable to expect from this Congress. Um, What we should be doing is taking these weapons of war out of the hands of civilians. In
0: 1994, then-President Bill Clinton signed the Federal Assault Weapons Ban, which prohibited the manufacture, transfer, or possession of semi-automatic assault weapons, including the AR-15 and AK-47. The ban expired in 2004, and gun control proponents like Senator Chris Murphy have been trying to get it back on the books ever since. But what would another assault weapons ban actually mean for crime in this country? Join me once again is the author of More Guns, Less Crime, and the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, John Lott. John, thanks for, uh, for staying with us. Thank you. Let's start with definitions. We hear the AR-15 and similar rifles being called weapons of war. How does the government actually define an assault weapon?
3: Well, I mean, with the original assault weapons ban, you had uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein's staff go through and look through catalogs of guns and essentially put check marks next to guns that they thought looked particularly scary. Uh, they would also they also had a definition where if guns had two or more of a different combination, like you know threaded magazine, threaded barrels, or uh, you know could hold a bayonet or a grenade launcher or Other things, uh, if they had two or more of these different characteristics, then the guns would be banned. Uh, Look, I mean, there's been a lot of academic research that's been done. There's been research that was even paid for by the Clinton administration that simply hasn't found any beneficial impact in terms of any type of violent crime or any type of mass public shooting. There's a simple reason for that simply banning guns based on how they look. I mean, they often refer to these as military style weapons where the key word is style. Look, I mean, if you at least if you talked about banning guns based upon how they function, it might make some sense. There are three different types of guns out there generally when you're talking about rifles. There's manually loaded guns where you pull a trigger, a bullet comes out, and then you have to physically yourself put another bullet in the chamber. You have semi-automatic guns where one pull the trigger, one bullet comes out, the gun reloads itself, one pull the trigger, one bullet comes out, and so on. And then you have fully automatic guns, machine guns, where as long as you have the trigger depressed, bullets are going to come out. We're not talking about machine guns here, despite many times the media refers to them as that. We're talking about semi-automatic guns. Eighty-five percent of the handguns sold in the United States are semi-automatic guns. Uh, a very similar percentage of rifles in the United States are semi-automatic guns. So the, The vast majority, and if you're using a gun defensively, having a semi-automatic gun can be very beneficial. If you're facing more than one attacker and have to fire the gun more than once, or you fire and miss, or you fire and wound, but don't incapacitate the attacker, you may be very thankful that the gun quickly reloads itself. Uh, If you have to manually put another bull in the chamber, you may not have the luxury of time to go and fire the gun again. But here's the deal with the AR-15s. They're, they're essentially hunting rifles that just look on the outside like a military weapon. No military in the world uses these guns. In fact, they're considered small caliber hunting rifles. Uh, you know, .223 t- tells you the diameter of the bullet. It's a little bit over .22 inches in diameter. People may be familiar with 22 caliber Rifles that are there. Uh, they know that in any type of mass production, that's the most common small caliber uh, bullet that you have. Uh, in fact, most states won't allow you to use an AR-15 to go and hunt deer because the concern that the caliber isn't large enough to make sure that you'll kill the deer. It's more likely that you'll just end up wounding the deer that's there, and they don't want the deer to run off and suffer someplace. But Look, um, to go on John, go-
0: John, let me ask, because you touched on this, the, the, the Biden administration line on this is, he will say, we know what worked. And he'll say, specifically Joe Biden will say, I was a part of what worked, which was this 1994 assault weapons ban. What, what data do they point to? I mean, I, I think they say, well, there are fewer mass shootings after this. Was that
3: true? Well, okay uh you may have, if you look at mass public shootings you may depending upon which data set that you look at and how it's defined you may find a drop of one or two you know in terms of the the rate in the 10 years before versus the 10 years after or you may find no you see no change in terms of the number of attacks with assault weapons um You know, it's not statistically significant. It's very tiny, even if you use the data sets that they want with the way that they want to go and selectively define the things that are there. But even if you use the data sets and the way they want to use it, there's another way to look at it. And that is to go and look at the percent of mass public shootings involving assault weapons. So even if you take their numbers, okay, the way that they want, what you find is that the percentage of attacks using assault weapons actually rose during the time that there was the assault weapons ban and fell afterwards. So if the ban is going to be responsible for any drop, no matter how tiny it is, then surely the share of attacks using assault weapons is going to have to fall over that period of time. And the opposite is true, because there's no way it's going to be driving the drop in the total if the share if you don't have a relatively bigger drop in the number of attacks with assault weapons that are there. And so, you know, it just, they, they, I can't tell you the number. There's been dozens of studies that have been done looking at this. There's one guy named Lebriebus, who's a professor at the at a, uh, teaching college at uh, Columbia, uh, who's done work on this, he has his own definition of these things, different from Mother Jones and myself and others that have put together these types of data. And he's the one that they cite, but even if you use his work, it's not a statistically significant drop, it's like a drop of like one or two between those periods of time. And even with his, the share of attacks with assault weapons goes up during the ban and then falls when the ban ends.
0: So John, I gotta ask you before before we close here, what does your extensive research many years on this topic tell, uh, tell you and, and therefore uh, all of us about what would actually be effective at reducing violence with, uh, violence with firearms in America? What, what actually helps bring that down?
3: Well, it's not rocket science. You wanna make it risky for people to go and commit crimes. If you wanna, first of all, people need to know that less than 8% of violent crime involves guns, okay? I know Biden wants to talk about violent crime as solely a a gun problem there, but the way you reduce violent crime generally is the same way that you reduce violent crime with guns. You have higher arrest rates, higher conviction rates. So when Biden went to New York uh, in February for his fourth big speech on violent crime, if it were me, I would have had a sister soldier type moment, I would have said, look, You guys cut the police budget by a billion dollars a year. Is it surprising you get more crime? You have district attorneys who are refusing to prosecute violent criminals. You have over half the inmates being released from local jails uh, during this period of time. You have bail reform so that violent criminals are being let out on no bail. You know, here you have people that have committed attempted murder, okay, who, who are facing multiple felonies. Who are going to be facing decades in jail if they're convicted? What did you know, and you let them out on no bail? What's their cost for taking doing another crime? I mean, if you're already facing twenty-five or thirty years potential prison term, what am I gonna do? Is the second life sentence I'm gonna give you gonna be the yeah. sentence that's gonna make it? So, so you're not So going law to...
0: enforcement and, and basically the opposite of the trajectory of the progressive prosecutors and the Democrats. Exactly the Democrat and mass incarceration line we've been hearing for years. John, always appreciate your work. Thanks for being with us.
3: Thank you for being there. getting rid of gun-free zones with regard to mass public shootings, but thank you for being there.
0: Thank you. That's all the time we have for this special edition of Hold the Line. I'd like to thank my guests, Cam Edwards and John Lott for sharing their deep expertise on this issue. Bill O'Reilly is up next. As always, Shields High.
2: To start your morning,
0: the Tunnel to Towers Foundation supports America's greatest heroes, our service members, and first responders who die or are severely injured in the line of duty, as well as homeless veterans. These are heroes we all owe a debt of gratitude to. The Foundation's Gold Star, Fallen First Responders, Smart Home, and Homeless Veteran Programs honor the sacrifices made for us. We're honoring the men and women who risk their lives and bodies for our country and our communities. The Foundation's Never Forget programs engage people in 9-11 remembrance across America with over 80 runs, walks, and climbs a year. Not to mention there are dozens of golf outings and barbecues. The Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute educates kids in kindergarten through 12th grade about our nation's darkest day while helping our nation keep its vow to never forget. More than 95 cents of every dollar you donate to Tunnel to Towers goes to its programs. Never forget 9-11 or the sacrifices of our country's greatest heroes. Donate $11 a month to Tallanta to Towers at t2t.org that's t the number 2 t.org
1: more details an official message from medicare
4: a new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs maybe you can save too with medicare's extra help program my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low who should apply single people making less than twenty three thousand dollars a year or married couples who make less than thirty one thousand dollars a year even if you don't think you qualify it pays to find out go to ssa.gov slash extra help Paid for by the
1: U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hear fascinating animal stories to explore wildlife across the globe in Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife. Starting March 15th, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.